Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, and my guest this week is Elizabeth Colbert. This is probably one of the most important interviews I've done for this show. Um, I've been wanting to do an episode about climate change and environmental change for a long time. These are issues that I feel passionately about, but am often scared off from due to their, not their complexity, but their enormity. They are things that are of such importance that it's sort of hard for me to hold them in my head at one time. The mind repels a little bit. We talk in here about something that is my scariest feeling about this era in which we live, which is you go back and you look back at other eras in human history. You look at the Spanish Inquisition or the Mongol hordes, and it's very easy for us to judge them immoral, to judge them barbaric. We look back and we would never treat our fellow human beings like that now. We would never do things of that level of evil. And then you look at what we're doing to the world that our descendants will have to live with. And I I know, I know this sounds preachy. I know this sounds depressing. I don't like how it sounds, even as it is coming out of my mouth. But we are on track for changes in the climate that when we last saw them are pretty close to what put Manhattan completely under ice. Elizabeth Colbert, she has written a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Sixth Extinction, which is a fantastic book. I really recommend it. But there have been five major extinction level events of species in recorded fossil history. We are now in a six. And this one isn't an asteroid. It isn't some natural phenomena. It is us. We are doing it. We are destroying a tremendous amount of life on this planet. And it isn't going to come back. One of the tough things about these issues is these are the issues that are related to public policy, but are uniquely irreversible. And that isn't to say, and and we talk about this, that isn't to say other kinds of public policy do not have irreversible dimensions. People die from wars. They die from not having health insurance. But if you screw up the deficit for a couple of years, that is probably bad for the economy and people will suffer, but you can get it back down. If you screw up the planet, And particularly a system as complex as the climate system, it really may not be that way. 
Elizabeth Colbert is the New Yorker correspondent who covers these issues most closely. She has written fantastic books, again, like The Sixth Extinction, on these issues. She's a great thinker on this stuff. She gives, at the beginning of this discussion, the single most lucid explanation of the science of climate change that I have ever been privileged to be witness to. I understand the underlying issues a lot better after talking to her. And she's worth listening to. She spends a lot of time in the spaces of the world, like Greenland, where we are beginning to see the effects that we will all see in the future today. She has a, a great line in a recent piece about how we are living in the climate of the past now. And the climate that we are creating is only going to be visible to folks who are toddlers today. So as always, very quickly, some pieces of business. Please rate the show on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, share it with your friends, put it on Facebook, on Twitter, over email. Uh, I'm always grateful. It is how we grow. Please check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about all kinds of ins and outs of American, usually American, public policy. And continue to send me ideas for guests and feedback on the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that said, and without further ado, here is Elizabeth Colbert. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So you're the New Yorkers, I think this is fair to say, uh, you're the New Yorkers doom and Armageddon correspondent. Well, I, I don't want to take sole, you know, occupancy of that uh, title because there's a bunch of us. But yes, I am one of the people who occupies that niche. How, how did you end up in the Doom and Armageddon beat? Well, I wrote a series of pieces on climate change back in 2005 for the magazine. That was sort of my introductory salvo, I guess. What, what did you cover before that? I had mainly covered politics, actually, mostly state and local politics in New York, actually. And so how did the, the climate change pieces come about? Well, they came about, they had a long, a long genesis. Um, it was at the beginning of the, uh, at going back to 2001, in the beginning of the uh, Bush administration, actually, George W. Bush. And some of your listeners may remember um, that at that point, that he, you know, he'd run against Al Gore, for whom climate change was a very important issue, and George W. had sort of tried to m mute the importance of that issue by saying he too was concerned about climate change. And then, as soon as he won, he pulled the U.S. out of the Kyoto Protocol, which was the climate treaty of its era, uh, and said, "We're not going to abide by it. We're not going to even try to ratify it." And my question to myself at that time was, how big a deal is this? You know, it was sort of a political policy question at the time. And the more I, I looked into it, that was a moment when there was still a lot of, you know, quote unquote debate about climate change. But even at that point, back in 2001, I quickly learned from the experts that that debate was mostly manufactured. So it seemed like a really important issue that people ought to know about and they ought to know that there really is no debate in the scientific community about this. And years went by, September 11th happened. Finally, I wrote and published this series of pieces in The New Yorker, as I said, in, in 2005. Uh, and that sort of has taken over my own, you know, just journalistic endeavors because it does turn out to be 
such a crucial issue. You have recently written a piece that I, I want to talk a bunch about, but I'm going to invert, I think, a rule of interviewing here because you wrote this amazing piece where you went to, to Greenland and watched the, the glaciers melting. And, and I want to talk about what it felt like to be there, but I actually want to begin with a quote from pretty low down in the article. Because if folks listening don't hear anything else, if they all tune out in minute 12, I want, I want people to have heard this because it, it helped me think about something that I have had trouble understanding. And you wrote, the problem with global warming and the reason it continues to resist illustration, even as the streets flood and the forests die and the muscles rot on the shores, is that experience is an inadequate guide to what's going on. The climate operates on a time delay when carbon dioxide is added to the atmosphere. It takes decades, in a technical sense millennia, for the earth to equilibrate. This summer's fish kill was a product of warming that had become inevitable 20 or 30 years ago. And the warming that's being locked in today won't be fully felt until today's toddlers reach middle age. In effect, we are living in the climate of the past, but already we've determined the climate's future. That's a very vivid way of describing this and, and speaks to, I think, a feeling a lot of folks have, which is we hear these hysterical, the planet is doomed kinds of comments and you look around and, yeah, if you squint, you can see things changing and there are examples of more storms. And I mean, you can look at the chart, but it doesn't feel like we are hurtling towards some kind of irreversible changes to the only planet we have. It, it, it feels modest. Right. And I do think that that is the enormous challenge that you know, people talk a lot about, and it, it sounds very dry, you know, climate communication, but it is at the center of the issue. And it is, you know, to be honest, you know, it's why I went to Greenland and it's why I keep writing about this issue. It can be very frustrating, but at the, at the heart of the matter and why climate scientists are very, very alarmed, as you say, it's not because of what we see right now, although there are many alarming things going on right now, not necessarily, you know, in Washington, D.C. or New York, but in many parts of the world. And then there is two issues that are really crucial to understand, one of which is that time delay that I alluded to in, the, in that passage that you just read. The Earth, you know, has to be in what scientists refer to as energy balance with space. It's very counterintuitive. But basically, the Earth re-radiates out the heat that it, the energy that it receives from the sun. And those two energy streams have to be in balance. That's just basically sort of a physical fact. So when we add CO2 Wait, can you slow down on that for a minute? It's a <laughs> it, I, yeah. I have not heard this term before, and I think it's interesting. So could you just explain it to me as Reddit would say, like, I'm five? Sure. Yeah. Well, what happens is sunlight hits the Earth, right, in the form of light in the in the visible part of the of the spectrum okay and then it gets re-radiated this is this is black body radiation basically and and any of your listeners you know who have taken sort of you know introductory physics i guess will appreciate it but it is not a concept that we use often in everyday life basically the earth is then re-radiating that energy back to space mostly in the form of heat in the infrared part of the spectrum. And those two energy streams by the laws of physics, you know, have to balance out. And when we add carbon dioxide to, or any other greenhouse gas to the atmosphere, basically what we're doing is we're trapping uh, heat near the surface of the earth. And so in order for those two energy 
extremists to balance out, and I'm simplifying you know, radically here, but basically the earth is going to heat up because the amount of energy that it's putting out is proportional uh, to its temperature. Once again, a very basic law you know, of physics that was worked out over 100 years ago. The earth is going to heat up until those energy streams once again balance out. And those calculations uh, can be made. You know, we know how much sunlight is hitting the earth, and we know how much you know, heat has to be re-radiated back out to space. And th that's at the heart of climate models, those just basic geophysical facts. Okay, so we are in this position, and, and I, I just want to reflect this back at you very quickly, because I, I think it's helpful to do this. One of the things that is striking about the climate change debate, and putting the debate over whether or not it is real, is that this is an effect you can simulate in a laboratory. You can imagine quantum mechanics where we're just doing math and making predictions, and it's helpful, but it's a bit mysterious. But what you're talking about here, you can do this, right? You can see it as a, as a science experiment. Well, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's important for you know, people to realize, I mean, once again, the, de the debate takes place in some, the, you know, once again, I want to use the word debate, you know, very advisedly. This is at this point, a, you know, just completely manufactured debate. But what, what we have here and, you know, the very short history of climate science going back to the 1850s, a, a British scientist named John Tyndall figured out that there are certain gases and what makes a gas a greenhouse gas, and this is once again a very fundamental you know, fact, is that it's transparent in the visible part of the spectrum, okay? So it lets in light. It, it doesn't interfere uh, with sunlight that is passing through the atmosphere, but it is partially opaque in the infrared part of the spectrum. So when the heat that is re-radiating out to space from the Earth, some of that is captured. And that you know, has to do with complicated physics that I'm not going to uh, pretend to explain right now or even understand. But we, those experiments to prove what is a greenhouse gas, so there are many you know, greenhouse gases, uh, those were done back in the 1850s. And already in the 1850s, this scientist named John Tyndall realized, okay, that is crucially important for regulating the climate of the earth. Because if you had no greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, then sunlight would hit the earth and all of that heat would get re-radiated out to earth and you can re-radiate it out to space, sorry. And you can calculate uh, what the temperature of the planet would be, and it would be frozen. So it was obviously a good thing that we had greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Now, what we're doing is adding to that. And if you just think about it, you know, for 10 seconds, you realize, okay, well, the impact of that is going to make the planet warmer. And it took quite a long time. We're talking about some very, uh, you know, sophisticated calculations, but a Swedish scientist um, in, named Svante Arrhenius in the 1890s did a very rough calculation of what adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere was going to do. And he turned out to be, you know, pretty close to accurate. And then there were all sorts of questions, uh, once again, which get very complicated about the saturation of the atmosphere, blah, 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 that delayed people's understanding of how significant uh, what we were doing was. And one of the other things that delayed our understanding was the question of how much of our emissions are going to get dissolved in the oceans. And that leads to another issue, which is ocean acidification. But it, it means that you're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and dissolving it in the oceans. And people overestimated how much of our emissions were going to end up in the oceans. And when they finally realized in the 1960s, by simply measuring CO2 in the atmosphere, that was also not easy to do, 
Uh, but once we got the first accurate measurements in the 60s, people realized, okay, we are increasing carbon in the atmosphere very rapidly. And you got a series of papers already back in the 60s and reports to you know President Johnson about this is a very serious problem. Do not wait until you see very serious effects because at that point it's going to be too late. So people were already saying that in the 60s and the 70s. And what we've done since then is just basically dither until now we are seeing some very serious effects. So one, I just want to thank you. That's an extraordinary, <laughs> one of the most lucid explanations of this I've ever heard. I have a bunch of science questions for you, mm-hmm. but but I actually want to jump, before I jump into some of those, into the tangible. One of the hallmarks of your work, at least in the time I've been reading you while you've been covering climate change, is you go to the places in the extremes of the earth where you can see these effects now. So so when you just said a moment ago, President Johnson was warned, don't wait until you are seeing the worst of this. What have you seen in going to these places where climate change is most acute that looks like our future to you? One of the reasons that people, not just me, but reporters and scientists flock to the polls is because of this effect that was also predicted very early on, you know, back in the early 70s, I believe, which is that as you warm the planet, you're going to see the effects most acutely where you're melting ice. So one of the reasons why you do not see the effects of all the CO2 that you're dumping into the air right away in terms of a temperature increase is because a lot of the energy that's being trapped by uh, CO2 emissions is going into melting ice that takes a lot of energy and it's going into heating the oceans. So that's one of the reasons that we don't feel these full effects in the air around us right away. Why is it going into heating the oceans and melting ice instead of being in the air around us? Because this equilibrium, right? It's like if you if you just said, okay, I'm going to you know heat up a terrarium, let's say, right? And there's water and there's rock and there's air in it. Everything has to you know sort of reach an equilibrium. Then once again with its surroundings and most of the energy. Once again, when you think about it, it's going to take most of the energy, right, to heat up the rocks, to heat up the the water, which can simply takes a lot of energy to raise increase its temperature by the same amount as the air, right? But I mean, if you if you everyone knows, right, if you if you just want to you know melt a block of ice cream or boil a pot of water, there's a lot of energy going into that. So it has to do with everything having to be in equilibrium with each other and how much energy, relatively speaking, that takes to achieve. And so this is proving particularly acute at the poles, which have a lot of these energy sucks concentrated well, uh, in them. Right. If you're, if you're melting ice, that is taking a lot of energy to do that. But the other thing that's important to realize about that and why the impacts are, are very pronounced at the poles, especially uh, in the Arctic right now, is because you're making a phase shift at that point, right? So you're melting ice, ice is becoming water. Now ice is extremely reflective. So another aspect of the Earth's climate system that's important to, to understand, and this goes back you know, to this whole energy balance question, is that a certain amount of the sunlight that hits the Earth just bounces right back into space because it's reflected by the ice, okay? That's called the albedo effect. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have heard about that. 
So the albedo is a measure of, of reflectivity. And a surface that's very, very white is very reflective. So ice is very reflective. That light basically just bounces back into space and sort of doesn't you know, count, as it were, as part of our energy absorption. Now, you change that to open water. Water is very, very dark, and it absorbs a lot of energy. So you're changing a very reflective surface uh, to a very absorbent sor surface, and you're now absorbing a lot of heat. So what you're seeing at the poles are these very dramatic transitions from a very reflective surface to a very absorbent surface, uh, lots and lots of heat, the temperature change in the Arctic has been very, very dramatic. And we're seeing now uh, this winter sea ice just collapsing. You know, the Arctic ice cap is basically disappearing so that, you know, even in winter now you have these, you know, large expanses of open water, which really hasn't happened in probably, you know, quite, quite a long time. What do these places like to go to? Well, people up in the Arctic... I mean, on the one hand, of course, there's many of them are, you know, just spectacularly beautiful places, but people up in the Arctic who live up in the Arctic, and it tends to be a very, very sparsely populated part of the world because conditions are very, very tough. There is no doubt they will tell you they have seen, you know, fantastic, phenomenal changes in the last 20 years or so. So, for example, a town that I visited in Greenland this summer, a town called Alulisat, where they used to, they're, you know, big seal hunters, and they used to go out in the, in the winter, very far out on the sea ice, and hunt seals from the ice with dog sleds. There's no sea ice anymore. The ice does not come in. They basically shot a lot of their dogs or euthanized a lot of the dogs because they, they didn't need them anymore. They didn't need to go uh, sledding anymore. They couldn't go sledding anymore. They couldn't go out on the ice. So life had changed uh, very, very dramatically for them. And there was no doubt in their mind that the climate was warming. Now for them, instead of, you know, taking out uh, sleds, they, they now take out boats. So people, you know, I don't want to say that people didn't see, they saw, you know, some advantages here, but there certainly was no doubt to them that the world was changing very, very fast. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers, 
about three months ago, two or three months ago. And they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own. And every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bomba socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym. I wear them around the house. I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. So this gets to this interesting question of, of adaptation. And you, you tell someone, you talk to someone, you say the earth might warm by two or three degrees Celsius. And they translate that into their own experience and say, fine, um, it is often two or three degrees Celsius right. hotter or colder where I am. And, and, and even in your piece about Greenland, you talk about how these folks who have lived there and have lived off of it and in this ecosystem for so long, while well, as fishing becomes in some ways scarcer elsewhere, they it is opening up some economic opportunities for them. So one, one place where I think that people can feel resistance to to the level of alarm they're hearing from scientists is that, yes, things might be changing. Yes, there might be change, but there's always change and people adapt to very different kinds of climates. So what is the reason for being skeptical we would simply do the same this time? To take that apart, and there's a couple of different answers I, I could give to them. And, and this idea that there's always change... I have to also object to that and or object to that at the start, because if you actually look at the climate record, one of the very important and crucial things that pops out <laughs> is that actually the last 10,000 years or so has been a remarkably stable time in climatological terms. And many people who have studied the history of the climate would say that it's no coincidence that human civilization what we consider civilization is also roughly 10,000 years old because before that, although humans were around, have been around for say 200,000 years or so, our species has been around for that long. We were in a much more unstable climate mode and, you know, humans were hunter gatherers. Uh, they moved around, they survived, they got by, but they didn't stay in one place. They didn't invent agriculture until this point, and as I say, you, you can see it when you look at the record of the climate, which we have now in great detail, actually going back many thousands of years, until the climate sort of settled down into this post last this period since the last ice age. So we've actually been living in a very stable climate regime. And that's how civilization as we know it and the world as we know it and you know seven, almost seven and a half billion people uh, living in the world as we know it came to be now now we are pushing the climate into in into potential instability and certainly into a different regime uh, from the one that we've known for roughly as I say roughly the last you know 10 eight eight thousand years I guess people would say so what does that mean well certain parts of the world, may benefit in, in the Arctic, for example, you know, Russia, there are a lot of people <laughs> looking at uh, Russia and saying, well, that they are potentially one of the beneficiaries, but you have to think to yourself, okay, let's say there are parts of the world now that are, you know, bread baskets for an entire region, and you're pushing, let's say, wheat production uh, into a different part of the world, well, or rice production, what's going to happen, you know, to the people and 
we're talking billions of people. We're not talking about you know a small number. We're talking we're talking billions of people whose livelihoods are potentially at risk and who's you know potentially at risk of going hungry. And you're also just talking about you know the potential for huge, huge disruptions in the world as we know it. And we are we are seeing what the effect of mass migration, you know, out of parts of Africa and parts of the Middle East, we're seeing that already. Some people would say that is the vanguard that's being driven by strife. It's being driven by economic crisis, all sorts of things. But some folks would say there's also a climate element to that. And this is just the beginning of what we're going to see. And that's very, very, very destabilizing. We can already start to see that. Where do you come down on some of the geoengineering solutions? You'll, you'll hear people say, look, it's going to be much easier than trying to change how all people in the world and governments in the world use energy to just blast sulfates into space and create a little bit more reflectivity in our atmosphere so that we get less heat or to put up mirrors that, you know, push the sun back a bit, recognizing that, that these often have a bit of a Bond villain feeling to them. And, and, and that can give folks, I think, appropriately the willies. <laughs> Is that just the easier way forward? I mean, even when you pose the question, sort of, you were, I think, appropriately slightly embarrassed to be, you know, asking. But to be fair, I'm embarrassed basically all the time. This is a person. <laughs> That's reasonable. Okay. But, you know, it's just like, it's like saying, well, the phrase, what could possibly go wrong comes <laughs> to mind. We are geoengineering the planet. I think that that is an important point to make. We are changing the climate. You know, we're, we're changing all sorts of aspects. Um, we are, you know, geologically altering the earth. But so we are doing that. We're doing that unconsciously. And then people say, okay, well, let's, let's think if we could think of steps to precisely cancel out the effects that we're having unconsciously, consciously, we'll try to do that. But when you actually look into that, so one of the po most popular of these schemes is, you know, we'll throw sulfates into space. These are these, you know, sort of tiny aerosols, the sorts of, of, of thing we get when we get a volcanic eruption. Volcanoes spew out massive amounts of sulfates. And what the problem with that as a as an idea to counter climate change there there's several problems i mean a being you know it's not at all clear that that we could do that on a massive enough scale another problem being that it 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 changes the climate it's not like you get back to the climate that you had no one would say that you do they would simply say that you are trying to balance out you know, sort of the net temperature increase, but still regionally, it's going to have huge impacts. And, you know, one of the potential impacts of, of a solution like that is shutting down the monsoon in parts of Asia, which would have, you know, incredibly enormous repercussions, once again, for agriculture, for the livelihoods of billions of people. So that has a huge, you know, regional impact that's also, once again, potentially incredibly destabilizing. And then the other thing that you have to think about is if you just continue to, to pour CO2 into the atmosphere, you have to pour that much more sulfates every year, right? This is a project we can never stop and that we have to actually keep ramping up as the more and more CO2 we put into the air. And, and what you do when, when you're putting sulfates into the air is you're reflecting a certain amount of sunlight back to space before it reaches the earth. So you're, you could potentially have huge agricultural effects. People talk about, you know, the sky looking different. We're not, we're not talking about something that, you know, that no one's going to notice. Let's put it that way. It is when you lay it out. It is the craziest fucking scenario. It always makes me think of the beginning of the matrix. I don't know how 
into the Matrix movies you were. But at the beginning, because we were fighting solar-powered robots, what we did was scorch the skies. And so now Earth is this wasteland. <laughs> and of yeah, course, that exactly. didn't go that well because then they just began harvesting us for energy. I'm not saying right. exactly that would happen, but 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 definitely that exact thing would happen if we did this. One of well, the, and I, the, yeah. the, other, the other point that I want to make, which I think is important to make, is Look, in replacing all of our fossil fuel infrastructure, I do not want to say that it's easy because it is not. But we do have various forms of power, you know, from wind power, solar power, potentially nuclear power that we actually are using right now at, at vast scale. So, you know, the question of, oh, well, we don't just don't know what to do. It would be just easier to throw sulfates into the atmosphere. <laughs> I have to uh, push back on that. So one of the things that is interesting about your work, about work in this space, and that I think is another place where we run into some basic cognitive limitations we have, is it's very hard, I think, for human beings, and I'll speak for me, for me, to think appropriately and effectively on geologic timescales. My life feels long to me, hopefully, but is short. And humanity, though, feels very long to me but has been quite short. You talked a couple minutes ago about 10,000 years of stability in our climate interacting and coinciding with the 10,000-year growth of human civilization. And I think one thing that those of us born in this era and particularly in this country tend to have is a almost mystical belief that it gets better, that there is the arc of, of history bends not just towards justice, but towards growth, towards technology, towards stability. And I'm always really struck when I begin reading history or work in this space, how deeply untrue that is, how much of human civilization <laughs> right. was very unpleasant, how much routine gains in, in human income only really began around the Industrial Revolution. And so just potentially how much more fragile what we have built actually might be. And I'm curious how you think about that. I think that we live in a very, very, by definition, obviously an extremely unusual time in, in world history, in human history. You know, there are a, a very brief time of, of these tremendously sophisticated technologies, as you say, really only since the Industrial Revolution have people even imagined um, this sort of a world. And, you know, we also live at a time of you know, extraordinary human population. It's, you know, as recently as 1800, there were roughly a billion people on the planet. And now we have almost seven and a half billion and we're heading pretty rapidly towards eight, nine to potentially 10 billion people. So it's a very, very unusual moment. And, you know, in many ways you could say an extraordinarily good moment, you know, standards of living for many of the billions of people on the earth are, you know, obviously higher than they've ever been in human history. But it's also potentially, you know, a very precarious moment. And our tendency to project out uh, from our own, as you say, very, very limited experience is potentially quite dangerous. And anyone, you know, I'm sure that the Romans also thought that, you know, uh, the Pax Romana was going to, you know, last forever. Clearly, you know, it didn't. And it, you know, ended and the Roman Empire ended with the sacking of Rome. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. But there are all sorts of, as you say, all civilizations in history have fallen, except for the one that exists right now. So um, the record isn't that good. Right. And, and it just, this is one of the places where 
it feels to me that if we could absorb these larger timescales, we would feel more fragile and appropriately more fragile. Because if you imagine the history of Earth, not of humans, but of Earth being written over a million year period, right? The last, you know, <laughs> forward 500,000 years and backwards 500,000 mm -hmm. years that whatever alien chroniclers there are, are just, you know, going through the history of this planet. It just wouldn't read that strangely that there arose a species on the planet that did extremely well for 10,500 years and then, you know, made a bunch of mistakes and ended up not seeing that dominance and not seeing that progress continue. That it's just, it's not assured, it's not guaranteed. No, absolutely. And I think that when we start from that, which is one of the themes of, you know, every every presidential campaign, even coming from people who, you know, doubtless know better, you know, our best days are yet to come. That That is not uh, not a given by any stretch of the imagination. And I think one of the things that prevents Americans from thinking too clearly about this is we are also a very, very young country. I lived in Rome for a year, a couple of years ago, and you are surrounded by the ruins of the Roman Empire. And I think that the Europeans who also have lived in, you know, very recent memory through two horrific world wars have a sense things don't always end well. They often end in catastrophe. Those who survive, you know, we are all the survivors, have to pick up the pieces from the rubble. But but there's a lot of rubble. And we in the US, we just haven't, you know, America as we know it, once again, there have been people here for many, many thousands of years. But this sort of European colonial nation uh, of America is is not very old, even in in the in the in the relatively brief history of human civilization. You wrote a phenomenal book that won a, a Pulitzer Prize called The Sixth Extinction, and I'd like you to maybe lay out. I'd like you to lay out the the thesis of that book for a minute because I, I think it speaks to some of this. I think it speaks to the idea that changes can be irreversible. They can be irreversible even as we are making them, and much that we think of as enduring and in some ways maybe bigger than the human race is actually quite affected and fragile in the face of it. Well, the real message of, of the book, the book looks at these moments in, and once again, we're talking over the, you know, the history of life. So the history of sort of complicated multicellular life is, let's say, roughly 500 million years and over that time period, there have been these five moments where we see in the fossil record that just the diversity of creatures on the planet has plummeted for some reason or another. And the most famous of these incidents is the is the fifth extinction, which is the one that did in the dinosaurs. And there's a pretty broad consensus that that was caused by an asteroid impact. So now, you know, fast forward 66 million years a whole new, you know, flora and fauna has evolved from, once again, the survivors of the uh, end Cretaceous extinction, minus the dinosaurs, minus a lot of groups that were very dominant prior to that. We are almost certainly a product of that extinction. Mammals then take a very dominant role on the planet following that extinction. And, you know, one mammal in particular comes to dominate the planet, and that's us. And now we are driving extinction rates to a level that, you know, almost certainly, you know, has not been seen in 66 million years. And if we keep on at this rate, you know, we will be sort of denuding the planet 
potentially on a level of that, you know, end Cretaceous extinction. So that is really the point of the, of the book. And, you know, the way we're doing that are, you know, by doing a lot of the things we've been talking about, but, you know, add into that, you know, mowing down rainforests, you know, moving things around the planet, that turns out to be a big driver of extinction. When we move species around the planet, we get some very, very nasty surprises. We're moving diseases around the planet all the time, things like that. So there's a lot of drivers of this extinction event. But what we're doing in the broadest possible, you know, scale is we're cutting off certain evolutionary pathways forever. So those branches of life will, you know, are just being severed. And what will emerge, you know, what will the world look look like, you know, 66 million years from now, we're in the process of determining that by, you know, allowing some creatures to survive and cutting off many of the limbs on, on, you know, the proverbial tree of life. Make that more concrete for me. When you say that we are driving extinction levels to uh, a height not seen in 66 million years, what are those levels? How many species are going extinct? What kinds of species? Because I think as a normal person, you look around and you've seen cats before and there's still cats around and you've seen dogs and pigeons and you see dogs and pigeons and there are mosquitoes. So what is disappearing? Well, once again, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. First of all, you know, most of life on earth, you know, is not cataloged. So we, we do not know sort of what is in the in the denominator of that, we, you know, what are the species, how many species are there on earth total? Is that true? Most um, of it is not cataloged? Yeah, that, that is absolutely How do we know that? We go and we put a pail into the ocean and we run it through, you know, we, we sequence all the DNA and we realize, okay, you know, 99% of this, we didn't know it existed. How's that? So, you know, things like that. Once again, that's a potentially a trivial example, but, but there are all sorts of ways of estimating, you know, how much of life we've cataloged roughly 1.5 million species, I believe, versus what's out there. And when you go look at, you know, a single square foot of, you know, microbes and insects. And so most of the life that has not been cataloged is, invertebrate life, you know, microbial life, it's, it's, it's very tiny. The big things, we probably do have a pretty good handle on what is out there. And that brings me to the next point, which is, you know, how do we know that extinction rates are very, very high? Well, what, what we do is we say, okay, let's look at mammals, for example, who are, which are pretty well cataloged. We, we believe that, you know, there's roughly 5,000 species of mammals around right now. Occasionally, a new one is found, but very, very rarely. So we feel we have a pretty good sense of how many mammals are around. And then we look at how quickly they're going extinct and how quickly they're moving through these various categories of endangerment, which are kept by this international group called the IUCN. And if we extrapolate out, so right now, roughly a quarter of all mammal species on the planet are considered endangered. And now one of the other points that I, I should probably make because it's sometimes lost in this con is that extinction as an event should be very, very rare, right? Because it should be happening even more slowly than speciation. So most of us have never seen a new species come into being and we shouldn't be able to see a species go extinct. But any kid, you know, who goes to a zoo realizes that that there are species going extinct in our lifetimes and all of us who are basically above two at this point, probably uh, there are species that we know have gone extinct in our lifetimes. Now, there are many, many others that have probably gone extinct that we did not know about. And that gets back to this question of, you know, do we even have a full catalog of, of what's out there? But the way we know that we have 
very elevated extinction rates is by looking at the groups of animals that we do study very carefully. And just to give you one example, giraffe populations are crashing and there was just a plea to put giraffes not the endangered species list, but to, to categorize them as endangered because their populations are crashing. Elephant populations are crashing. So big, iconic animals are in the process of disappearing. There's something in there to me that connects back to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, because we brought up the idea of adaptation, the idea that there are all kinds of things human beings can potentially do to manage a changing climate. And I recognize that when we're talking about the extinction events, we're talking about more than just climate changes. But as climate changes, as also the built environment changes, the disease mix changes, as all these things move and shift, there are things that we can do. We can all move to Russia and presumably we will just all move to Russia. Things seem to be going well over there right now. <laughs> it's actually not true. They're not going that well, uh, just geopolitically well. But seriously, there's a lot that human beings can do to adapt. But giraffes do not really know what's going on and right. cannot effectively plan a counter response. Microbial life does not know what's going on, cannot plan a counter response. Elephants do not know what is going on and cannot plan a counter response. And it feels very scary. I, I will say that when I read your book, and, and it was a, a year or two back now, and we had a great conversation back then too, but when I read your book, it filled me with a guilt and a dread, unlike anything I had read before, because it felt like, because I am part of this moment in human history when we are committing an irreversible act of violence on the diversity of, of life on this planet. And it, it isn't going to come back. It isn't that we are going to put in place some new policy next month or next year or five years from now, and it will all reverse itself. It's just done. And the question seems to be how much worse it will get. Well, I think that's a very good reading of the book. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, the whole sort of point of, of trying to get people to read about something that you know, I don't think is getting enough attention, you know, not nearly as much attention as, you know, Donald Trump's latest tweet is this irreversible loss that we are inflicting uh, on the planet. And I think there will be, you know, a moment um, when it will come to seem our gravest I don't, I don't know if I want to use moral term sin or gravest mistake. It would be so amazing if tomorrow morning we just woke up and Donald Trump had tweeted, human beings are committing a six mass level extinction. Sad. That, that would be <laughs> so sad. So sad. Uh, yeah, that would be a, that would, that would be. Make uh, biodiversity great again. Exactly. 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 <laughs> I will. I will look forward to that moment. You know. This is actually, though, a reasonable segue into something I want to talk about that relates to Donald Trump. My background as a policy writer is really healthcare and economics. And healthcare and economics do have irreversible dimensions to them. People lose their jobs and they never quite recover, particularly from long-term spells of unemployment. Or people don't have healthcare and, and they really, they can die. They can become permanently disabled. So I, I in no way want to diminish the extraordinary human consequences that exist within those issues. But I think something people have intuitively when they look at politics is they see politics as a space of reversible decisions, even quite bad things like an unnecessary war. You can eventually get out of that country. 
we had the war in Vietnam. A lot of people died, and obviously that is permanent. But now we have pretty good relations with Vietnam, uh, amazingly enough. And then on a much more normal scale, George W. Bush blew up the deficit, but now the deficit is significantly lower, um, even if there was pain in between. The things that you cover. And some of the things that I think we are hurtling towards as a planet and that, as I understand it, Donald Trump is not particularly interested in reversing, those things feel much less reversible to me, species extinction, warming of the climate, that if we don't get them under control, and and there was certainly no guarantee that we're going to get them under control, even if the election had gone the other way. But if we don't get them under control, they just go out of control. And they are bigger and they are more complex and they are more inevitable than I think the issues we're used to thinking about and dealing with. Well, I think that gets back to, you know, what we were talking about at the at the beginning, and it's a really crucial point, which is even in many environmental issues, you know, you say, Oh, you know, this river is is polluted, the Hudson River, for example, you know, you know, no one would have would have swum in it or, you know, it was 40 years, 50 years ago, let's say. and But if you, you know, put controls in place, you, you, you clean things up, eventually the system, you know, rectifies itself. So even in a lot of cases, you can mostly reverse environmental damage, let's say, or certainly minimize it. But one of the things that's really important to understand with climate change is also it's it's a cumulative problem, right? If you put that CO2 up into the air, it does not disappear for centuries, basically. So everything that we're putting up there is, you know, effectively, once again, I'm not going to go into the sort of details of the carbon cycle, but effectively, it's still going to be up there a century from now, no matter what you do, unless you start sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere, which is something people, once again, on the engineering side of things, are talking about, but is very, very, very difficult to do without using a lot of energy, which is precisely the problem. So we are in this complicated circular uh, uh, problem here. So I think that a lot of the damage that Donald Trump will do to the U.S. over the next four years, you know, a lot of it will have very lasting repercussions, and certainly, you know, a stupid war uh, has devastating consequences that are more or less permanent. But one of the things that he will will seems intent on doing by you know very very foolishly denying um, or ignoring yeah denying the importance and significance of climate change is is once again just locking in that much more warming of the planet and one of the things that that we haven't talked about and one of the reasons that I was in Greenland this past summer is you know one of the biggies one of the things that we you, you talk about okay. Well, we'll all move, you know, to Russia. We'll we'll start migrating around the planet, and you know that that will happen, unfortunately. But one of the things that we're locking in is is a lot of sea level rise uh, because we're melting ice sheets, like the the Greenland ice sheet. You know, we're we're in the process melting is accelerating on, and we're even potentially you know destabilizing uh, the Antarctic ice sheet, parts of the Antarctic ice sheet. So we're potentially locking in more and more sea level rise, and that is just going to cause there's no getting back from that either. Once you start put some of these processes in motion, you cannot stop them uh, on anything like a human timescale. Well, so many of our coastal cities, you know, 50, 100 years from now, you know, are potentially going to be underwater. Putting the election aside, what pace of warming are we on track for right now? 100 years from now, two degrees, four yeah. degrees, five? 
Well, it depends on what we what we do over the next, what is it, 83 years. But here's what I can say that uh, when the Paris Climate Accord was signed almost exactly a year ago, the estimates were made that if we did everything in that, which, you know, Donald Trump has vowed that we, the U.S., will not be doing our part uh, to live up to our Paris commitments, which were significant, achievable, eminently achievable, but significant. But anyway, let's just let's just ignore that for the moment and say, okay, everyone does live up to their Paris commitments, but no more than their Paris commitments. We were on track for warming of, I think it was about almost 3.6, I believe, something in there, 3.6 degrees. Fahrenheit, I mean, Celsius, so multiply that times, you know, 1.8. What are we getting? We're, you know, we're getting, you know, certainly, you know, in the six degree Fahrenheit range. That is phenomenally significant. And another another point, people often use this as a point of comparison. I think it's an important one is at the depth of the last ice age, I guess, when Manhattan was covered by ice, okay? So most of the Northeastern U.S. was covered by an ice sheet, you know, a mile or two thick, the average global temperature was only about five degrees Celsius. So that's roughly 10 degrees Fahrenheit, colder than it is today. So when we think of average global temperatures, we can't think of it in terms of, oh, it was two degrees warmer yesterday. It'll be two degrees colder tomorrow. It doesn't make any difference. Average global temperatures are you know, a whole different ball of wax, as they say. Yeah, it almost would be better if there was some other way of talking about the global climate because People, I think I, I do this myself, translate it into weather, which, yes, look, it's right. currently 15 degrees in D.C. I am miserable. I could not right. be less could, happy about this situation. Happy. Right, right. And you, you say it wouldn't be bad. But I'm alive. We're not, under, we're not under ice. Right. You know, many people have, have struggled with this and have even suggested, for example, that the term uh, I went recently to talk to President Obama's science advisor, John Holdren, and he said, you know, even even the term global warming, that, you know, that was probably the wrong term. We should have come up with something better because people are like, oh, it's, it's going to get warmer. You know, it's going to be like going to Florida. What's so bad about that? I think that what journalists and scientists have been struggling to convey to people and, you know, once again, apparently have failed because we have just elected, you know, a whole crew of people, not just Donald Trump, but just a whole slew of people who claim that this basic science doesn't exist, just are trying to sort of wipe it off the map, is that you could have a very different climate and it could be okay, but you couldn't live where you live right now. And when you think about a very sophisticated civilization and a very volatile global situation, you know, like we have right now, uh, and you think of, okay, well, maybe three or four billion people are going to have to move uh, because they can no longer farm where they are right now. It's very difficult to see how you come out the other side of that in a happy way. And also, I want to point out the climate keeps changing. You, you keep pouring CO2 into the atmosphere. You, you don't get a stable climate. You get a climate that is perpetually changing. So it's not like, okay, well, let's just all move tomorrow. You know, we'll all just move to Russia tomorrow and then it'll be okay. No, the climate is going to keep on changing until it stabilizes somewhere else in some other climate, which, you know, we don't know where that is right now. With that, that's a really fascinating point. I've not heard it put that way exactly. So, so I want to reflect back at what you just said to make sure I understand it, <laughs> that we think of the change potentially as some kind of linear process, 
that there's going to be a warming of one degree Celsius, two, three, four, Jesus Christ, four, five, <laughs> things are really bad at this point. But that what's happening is not going to be an eternal state of flux, but, but some kind of new equilibrium. And when you talk about the idea that when it was five degrees Celsius colder worldwide, that Manhattan was under ice, which is a, a stunning thing to think about because we are potentially on track for a level of warming. You said it's 3.6 if we followed the Paris Accords. Does not look to me like we're going to follow the Paris Accords. So let's say four. We're on track for level of warming not far off from that. That The reason you have Manhattan under a block of ice is that it's a different climate. It's not the climate we think of, that the feedback loops and the, the different things that have been kicked off have settled into something that does not look like this but hotter, but just looks right. like something else. It has become a kind of a phase change. Right. And where the next sort of, you know, stable equilibrium point here is, no one knows, but it's potentially, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say, and I, I don't think that any climate scientists would object to this, that we've already locked in change that's going to go on, you know, for centuries. The sea level rise that we've already locked in, once again, it's not something that you get overnight. And, you know, we can thank God for that. Uh, it's something that you may get in, in pulses that are very, very difficult to deal with, but it's something that's going to continue, you know, for hundreds of years. So, the idea that we are, you know, locking things in for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren, for our great-great-grandchildren, for generations, you know, yet to be imagined. I, I can't stress that enough. That is what we are doing. We're not even thinking about it. We're not aware of it, but it is what we're doing. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Here's a question that's a strange question, but, but I want to ask and I want to consider it. We have a tendency in the present to look back on the past and judge it barbaric. We look back on the Spanish Inquisition. We look back on the Mongol hordes. We look back on, on how human beings treated each other, the things that they did. And there can be a sense of unreality about it. How did that cruelty exist in that time? I think to some degree, people look back on World War II and see that. And when I, 
I don't try to think about this all that often, but but I have this conversation with you. And it feels to me that in a way none of us realize, in a way that has been completely normalized in our everyday existence, that we now exist in a time that people in the future, those great-grandchildren, those great-great-grandchildren, those great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren might look back and really judge us harshly, really judge us to have been a barbaric, selfish, short-sighted society that took this one planet that we didn't fully understand and took all this progress that had been so fragile and had been so hard won and let a lot of it go because the alternative was inconvenient, not impossible, but inconvenient. And that if some of this stuff comes true, and, and Lord knows I hope it doesn't, but if some of this stuff comes true, the judgment of history on our era is going to be staggering. I think that's very, very well said. And I think that, yes, that it's true. Absolutely. And all of this information, you know, maybe someone will dig up this podcast 100 or 200 years from now. This podcast is just about clearing my name for the future. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to count on that. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, get a swelled head here, Ezra. But yes, all of the information you know, was there for for anyone to read and certainly for people highly placed in government to read. And I think this particular moment, I think that we are, once again, I, I don't think I'm saying anything, you know, out of the mainstream here right now. You know, it's often attributed, it's often described as a Chinese curse, as probably someone made it up, you know, in Kansas or something. May you live in interesting times. We live in interesting times, and that is not uh, that is not a happy situation. You, you you mentioned that this is something that people high up know and can know. You, you wrote an interesting piece about Rex Tillerson, who is Donald Trump's nominee for Secretary of State, and he is, of course, the the CEO of Exxon. And you talk a bit in this piece about Exxon's history around climate change, and it has funded a lot of climate change denialism despite the fact that going back decades now, its own scientists have concluded that climate change is clearly real. It's very serious and needs to be handled. Under Tillerson, some of that funding of denial stopped. The company's official position, you can see it on the website, is that climate change is real and it exists and it's a problem. They are still, I would say, not, I think you say not a helpful force in all this, and, and they have real business incentives not to be a helpful force in all this. They, they are a fossil fuel company. But Tillerson is one of these people who has sat atop an information structure. He really does understand energy, and he has had scientists telling him in his own company for a long time, this is very real, and the consequences will be very grave. Is there any reason for optimism here? Is there any reason that there, there will be a, a Nixon goes to China moment having the CEO of a fossil fuels company that does know these issues better, I think, than most would in a place to do something about it? Well, one one just point that I want to make is, and and this is not you know my own research at all. This was piggybacking on on the research of some some researchers at, at, at Harvard and MIT, and they went to look at exactly the question: Has ExxonMobil stopped? funding climate misinformation. And they found the answer as recently as 2014, which was the last year that they had the full set of data for, was was no. They were still funding a lot of these groups that are in the business of disseminating misinformation. 
And I want to see the, you know, the biggest climate denier organization, the most powerful climate denial organization on the planet right now is the U.S. Congress. And ExxonMobil was a huge donor to some of the leaders of that, you know, of what we might call the, you know, denialist caucus, which unfortunately is also coterminous with the Republican leadership. Yeah, I was going to ask this question. Is it the, is it the U.S. Congress or is it the Republican Party in the United States of America? Yes, it's the, it's the you know, unfortunately it's the party in power, but yes, it's the Republican, but people in, in very high leadership positions leading all of the, you know, essential committees. But yes, you have many Democratic, you have, you know, a, a senator like Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat from Rhode Island who gets up on the floor of the Senate every week and gives a speech on how important climate change is and how we ought to be uh, addressing it. So yes, it is confined to one party. Uh, unfortunately, that is the party that's now in power in both houses. But to get back to Tillerson for a moment, what doesn't give you a much hope that we're going to have a, you know, Nixon coming to China moment is that many other energy companies have, even while they're in the business of selling fossil fuels, which is, you know, sort of prima facie, not doing anything good for the climate, have really tried to to diversify and take on this issue and genuinely not fund climate misinformation. So even amongst oil companies, who I'm not going to really hold up as you know, good citizens these days, ExxonMobil still you know, is kind of out there on its own. So the idea that someone who led that company is going to be the person who's going to suddenly have this aha moment in a White House surrounded by, and I think that one of the most depressing and frightening things as for me, as I heard, you know, as Donald Trump went through his cabinet picks was we are assembling a sort of echo chamber of denialism. And I don't know who is going to be in that room who has even a modicum of integrity on these issues. And that I think is really, really scary. A point that I think is worth making here and, and that I find confusing and difficult to deal with I want to say that for for listeners, this can sound, this part of a podcast like this sounds very partisan, right? The Republican Party. It's not both parties. They're not both doing it. it and people don't like to think like that. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. But something interesting about this is it, it is a facet of American politics that the right-leaning party, the conservative party, is a climate change denying party. But that isn't a facet of worldwide politics. That isn't the case in a lot of other countries. And I'm curious, I assume you've probably looked at this more than I have. If, if you have an explanation for, for this, why is climate denialism a foundational fact of conservative ideology in the United States of America where it isn't in, in most other countries? Well, I, th I think it's sort of this weird historical accident to a certain extent. And it's certainly true what you're saying that it is not foundationally true in the rest of the world. For example, you know, Angela Merkel, who Germany has really been at the forefront of trying to produce, you know, and being an industrialized country and trying to produce a clean energy economy. She she belongs to what, you know, is considered Germany's, you know, center-right party. So there's nothing in ideology. I mean, once again, you know, scientists would say, well, facts, you know, they don't have an ideology. You know, would we say that chemistry has an ideology, that physics has an ideology? No. So the f fact that one party decided, and it was a decision, I would say it's not, you know, I'm not being partisan. The Republican Party has decided 
to to politicize this issue. And that was not always true, I want to say. When I wrote about climate change in 2005, I spoke to John McCain, who was one of the leaders at that point of trying to get the Senate and brought a bill to the Senate floor that was defeated to try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this country. He was one of the leaders. And, you know, he's obviously a leading figure in the Republican Party. And then through... Um, combination of, you know, big money, uh, fossil fuel money, and all sorts of, you know, vast right-wing, you know, conspiracy uh, elements, climate change became something that this issue, which almost became a litmus test of, are you a conservative? Do you accept the scientific consensus on climate change? If you said you did, you were sort of thrown out uh, of the party. So, you know, I did not politicize this issue, but but many people who had a big economic stake in this issue politicized it. Let me ask you, and and you can tell me if you think this is a, a lazy question. You're free to just reject it. Okay. What gives you hope here, if anything? Or is hope not a realistic emotion given the yeah. underlying trends? I will say that I think that, that that there's just too much talk about, you know, are you hopeful? Are you not hopeful now? And I think that that is not the issue. And, you know, in, in both the book I wrote about climate change and the book I wrote about extinction, I, I almost try to, you know, make a, make a joke out of that. That's not the issue. It's not, the question is not how we feel about it. That is, we all feel bad about it. Uh, we all wish it would go away. The question is, you know, what are we going to do about it? And what is, you know, anyone who can look at the incoming Congress and the incoming administration and find reason for hope, I doff my hat uh, to that person because they are really, they are digging pretty deep. There is nothing that these guys have said and there's nothing that they've done uh, that gives me hope that they are going to act on these issues in a responsible way. How about on the technology side? When, when I talk to people who are hopeful here, the way in which they are hopeful is they're hopeful about innovation's ability to outpace our problems. Well, I think actually that is on some level the great struggle that we're seeing here. And why has Donald Trump stacked his cabinet with, you know, people who are in the fossil fuel industry and people who are very, very heavily indebted to the fossil fuel industry? And I think one of the things that we're seeing here is the sort of last gasp of the fossil fuel industry. I think that there are, that technology is moving very quickly and that that is a reason for a certain amount of optimism. But you're not going to get where we need to go without a combination of very smart technology, very, very major investments in technology, and very smart public policy. All of those elements have to be in place. And what these guys are doing, I worry, is going to spend the next four years putting in place as much new fossil fuel infrastructure as they possibly can. That infrastructure then has to be amortized. You know, you don't just throw out a new pipeline. You don't tend to just do that. So what we should be doing is, you know, turning over our energy infrastructure as quickly as possible, moving from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of energy and not investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure. And my worry and my, I'm mystified in a little way why so many people from the fossil fuel world are in his cabinet. And I feel like they're sort of getting their claws in for one last, you know, party, basically, before the whole thing collapses. But that could have very, very 
serious ramifications. Where would you like to see that major investment go? If you were helping Congress figure out what to do, where, where to put the moonshot, where would it land? Well, I mean, the the energy department, I mean, there are all sorts of major investments going right now on, and we, we have seen big big payoffs from them to a certain extent. I mean, and, and this is true of the U.S. government. It's true of governments in Europe. Uh, it's true of the government of China. You know, we've seen the cost of, of PV panels for solar arrays drop by, you know, something like 80%. And that was not an accident. That was not, you know, just through private sector, you know, innovation. That was a combination that was very largely driven by government policy in different parts of the world. So if, if you want to say what gives me hope, that is a very hopeful hopeful development. We need to have, once again, I, I would not consider myself, you know, an expert and you should have someone, you know, on this podcast who is, but, you know, we need um, investments in our grid, what people call a smart grid. We need to be able to use more of these sources of energy that are intermittent. So the sun doesn't shine all the time and only shines, you know, sometimes uh, wind ditto. So we need to integrate the grid better and we need to be able to move power around better. And we need to be you know, investing in known sources of energy, and we need to be investing in, in as you say, the sort of moonshot potential sources of energy, which I can't even name at this point because we don't we don't know what they are. One of the pieces of this that I have seen credited with a lot of our effect on the climate and the atmosphere in different reports, but but feels to me like something folks don't really know how to talk about, or, or potentially even just a bit afraid to talk about is how we eat and consume food. There seems to me to be a lot of evidence that particularly livestock raising has a tremendous greenhouse gas effect in some ways as big or bigger than, or as big or roughly as transportation. But we're very comfortable talking about cars and SUVs, very comfortable talking about fossil fuel extraction, and a lot less comfortable talking about the much more, I think, personal feeling decision of how people should eat. I'd be curious because you would know this research better than I do how you think about that and and whether or not that's something that that needs to be brought into this discussion in a way that's not yet been true. Well, I mean, agriculture is very significant and meat production is significant. I I don't think it it rises to the level of of transportation globally, but we'd have to look at those figures very, very carefully. And there are two components to, I mean, first of all, everyone does have to eat. And that involves clearing, often involves, you know, land clearing. And the more of us there are, the more forest gets cut down to produce food. And that has a, a greenhouse gas. You know, when you cut down a forest, you're, you're, you're effectively produ- you know, producing greenhouse gases. And then the other part of it, and this goes mostly, I think people are talking about beef production here, is cows burp. They they burp a lot of methane. They're big methane producers. That's that's how their digestive system works. And methane, which is also, you know, roughly speaking, natural gas, is a very powerful uh, greenhouse gas, even more powerful than, much more powerful in the short term, at least, than carbon dioxide. So that's where you get a lot of, that's where you're getting a big uh, greenhouse gas component, uh, particularly from beef consumption. So Definitely a very simple way if people want to, you know, pretty painlessly reduce their own carbon footprint uh, is to eat a lot less beef. Yeah, and it's a fascinating thing. So I have a lot of interest personally in animal suffering issues. And one of the fascinating tensions in that space is between you actually reduce animal suffering a lot if you move all of your consumption to something like beef because it takes a person 10 years or so to eat a cow compared to, you know, you can eat a chicken in a night. But beef 
cattle raising is, as far as the evidence seems to show, the absolute worst when it comes to to the climate. So it's another place where living a moral life is extremely, extremely difficult. Yes. And I think that there can be sort of, and I totally understand this and I, you know, I experienced it myself and I'm pretty steeped in these issues. There's a sort of an ethical overload, like, oh, oh my God, you know, should I, should I buy this or that? And what is, you know, you know, everything in the world practically contains palm oil. Uh, palm oil production is a huge source of deforestation. It's driving many species extinct, you know, in the Indonesian rainforest, for example. Um, you know, is everyone going to, every time you go to the grocery store, you know, are you going to check through the labels of everything to make sure that things don't have palm oil, that they're, you know, that you're not eating beef, that you're not eating this. And, and people just throw up their hands and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to McDonald's basically because I, I don't, I, I just can't deal with it. And I, I understand that there is very, there's, it's very, very difficult to live in a globally interconnected world where all sorts of terrible things are happening to get you the goods that, you know, support your, you know, lifestyle as it were, all of our hands are dirty. You know, we do not, none of us are leading a lives that on very close examination, I think any of us would say, well, we, we are, you know, just living up to our own ethical standards. And that's a very disturbing uh, position to be in. And, and, and what can we all do about them? Well, one thing that we, we can do is, you know, be politically active and, and ask for more, you know, transparency in all of these supply chains and, and, and labeling and, and various things like that. But it's still very, very difficult to live the way we do and pat yourself on the back um, for your ethical conduct. And we, we, we probably all need to not pretend otherwise. I struggle with this question a lot. I mean, and, and I think a, a good way of putting it is the, it's the Al Gore lives in a big house and takes a lot of plane flights question, right? I mean, you will often see Gore's climate advocacy questioned and undermined by critics saying, yeah, if this guy really cared about the environment, he wouldn't have this giant house in Tennessee. He wouldn't be taking uh, private planes all, all over the world, they, you know, whether or not he's buying, buying carbon offsets. That, that's fundamentally immoral. And a lot of these issues feel to me like a place where we are mixing up in a somewhat profound way collective and individual action. Obviously, it is important for people to, to try to live moral lives and to try to do their best. But the decisions that need to be made around something like climate outcomes are so complex that the idea of putting all of that cognitive burden on every individual individually seems really wild to me. That in a world where we're pricing carbon correctly, well, then the market, as it does in so many other spaces in our life, helps us make decisions that allocate scarce resources well, right? It's like if we were not pricing, pick your completely critical resource. And so we were running out of, you know, certain kinds of food or apples or whatever. But here, I often feel that there's this kind of dodge made that the the necessity here is to be individually perfect. When for individuals, I think the actual decisions here are too complex to think of it like that, which is why you really do need to do things like carbon pricing approaches. And, you know, then if Al Gore wants to live in a big house or take a lot of plane flights, well, then he's got to pay the cost of the carbon damage that he or anyone else is creating. But in a world where you can't do that, where those costs are not built in, it feels like a dodge in the debate to try to make that the issue. Yes, I, I, I basically agree with that. I mean, we're not solving this, you know, by by you and cutting down on your beef and me, cutting down on your, you know, we're not solving this with the accretion of, of, of individual efforts. 
we are only solving this and and you know that's why you know i said before that you need you know massive public policy changes but you know it's not even clear that you're solving it then i want to say and it also i also do want to say and i certainly you know support a, a, a carbon tax of a very significant one or one that ramps up to something very significant but that doesn't remove these ethical questions these ethical questions are are real even if individual actions are not solving the problem and if, even if massive public policy changes would change the equation, you know, we still do have all of these issues of, you know, and, and Al Gore is just an example of, you know, of an American. I mean, he, he, you know, Americans use way, way, way more than their share of, as it were, the global commons. And even if we can, can pay for it, you know, is that ethically justified? So these, these questions don't, don't go away, but which isn't to say that, you know, I, I completely believe, you know, we're only only solving, and I don't even use the word solving because we are not solving these problems. And that gets back to the issue of we've already built in a lot of damage. It's it's built in. It's not going away uh, no matter what we do. So we are only minimizing our damage going forward by massive public policy changes. I completely uh, agree with that. Um, but I just want to say that that doesn't necessarily mean that the ethical questions go away. Are there ways in which your work on these and other issues and the ethical questions they've raised for you have changed the way you personally live? Yes, you know, absolutely. But I never would hold myself out. I, you know, I fly around the world a lot for my for my job to do reporting. I flew to Greenland, you know, and I kn know there was just a a study which I thought was a very powerful study that came out that, you know, talked about how every American's emissions, you could, you can look at, you know, how the Arctic ice cap is shrinking and we're all responsible for X number of square yards of loss of Arctic sea ice, you know, per year, you can assign it to each one of us. And that to me was a very, it was extremely painful. And, you know, as I, you know, flew to the Arctic, I knew that I was, you know, melting X number on some level, melting X number of yards of, of, of the Arctic. But I still do it. I'm still part of this whole system. And I never hold myself out, as I say, as someone who, you know, has solved the problem of how to live you know, as a middle class American in the 21st century without producing a lot of carbon. So one thing I would recommend really is that, that people read your book, the, the Sixth Extinction. But one thing we always do at the end of this podcast is ask guests for, for a couple book recommendations around the issues we talked about. Are there, are there books you've read on these environmental questions or, or the political questions you covered before that that have really changed the way you think and that you think other people benefit from picking up? There are a lot of, of, of really, really good books out there, obviously, on environmental issues. And, and, and some of the some of the classics, I, I recently taught a science and, and, and nature writing class, so I, I have a list of books in my in my head that are among my my favorites, some new and some old, and I'll give a smattering of both. So one book that I think is still unbelievably timely and just absolutely fantastic is um, Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. Uh, anyone who hasn't read it and who's interested in the natural world should definitely go out and read it. Uh, and another book that really stands the test of time and makes you think about our relationship to the natural world is, is Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. A book that I like that is a really lovely book that's more recent, it's about looking at one single patch of a forest over the year and weaves some really beautiful observations with 
uh, discussion of what how we're changing the natural world is a book called um, The Forest Unseen, is a is a lovely book that I would recommend. Um, another book that really stands up really well is Bill McKibben's The End of Nature. That was written sort of before most people were aware of climate change. It brought climate change to people's attention. It was another book that we read in this course that I taught. And I thought that that really, the message of that is still very, very timely, even even though we're now almost, you know, we're over 20 years later after that was written. That's fantastic. Thank you for both the work you're doing, but also for being on the podcast. It's been really, really great. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you to Elizabeth Colbert. It was fantastic to talk with her. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It definitely gave me a lot to think about going forward. Thank you to you for tuning in to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. 